Section 24 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. The Religious Conflict Merged in the Great War, Part 6. During the wonderful years 1631 and 1632, the European problem seemed at last to have found its master in the great Swedish king. But neither the deeds nor the plans of Gustavus Adolphus belong to the subject of this sketch. After his death, November 16, 1632, Richelieu perceived in the new condition of things the real opportunity of France, and by entering upon the deliberate execution of his great political plan, cut off all prospect of a revival under any conditions of the Catholic reaction in the empire. The Convention of Heilbronn, 1633, kept alive the Protestant alliance, and had Wallenstein, aggrieved and ambitious, been actually tempted into an alliance with the foes of the emperor, it might have proved possible to detach Bohemia and its dependencies under a national king from the Habsburg rule, and they might have recovered their religious liberties in due sequence. But this was not to be. Wallenstein's assassination, February 1634, though it removed a serious obstacle to the complete reunion of the interests of the two branches of the House of Habsburg, helped to secure to France the decisive voice in the affairs of Europe, and France neither would nor could assent to any Pacific settlement, which, by restoring to the Catholic reaction the advantages formerly gained by it, should have crowned the Habsburg policy with success. Thus, though the great victory of Nordlingen, September 1634, made the emperor master of the whole of the southwest, it only led to the Treaty of Paris, which threw into the arms of France the German members of the League of Heilbronn, in November, unwillingly followed by Sweden. On the other hand, the Protestant princes of the northern part of the empire, headed by the elector of Saxony, soon concluded with the emperor the Peace of Prague, May 1635. This treaty left in the hands of the Protestant princes included in it all their immediate acquisitions and all the immediate territories obtained by them before 1627, in other words, the greater part of the northern bishoprics, and therefore in substance undid the Edict of Restitution. No mention was, however, made either of the Bohemian liberties or of a possible restoration of Protestant rights in the hereditary dominions of the House of Austria. And the benefits of this treaty, as of the religious peace concluded eighty years before, were not extended to the Calvinists. This compromise with the Lutheran interest, which the Edict of Restitution had so unwisely offended, was strongly opposed by Urban VIII, and the Jesuit influence at Vienna, but supported by F. Quiroga and other leading Capuchins. During the weary and awful years which remained of the Great War, 1635-48, to 48, the religious character of the struggle was nearly altogether lost. In the real forefront of the fight stood on opposite sides the two great Catholic powers, France and Spain, and the attitude of the head of the church contributed to the confusion of accustomed conceptions. While Richelieu was unfolding his designs for the overthrow of the Habsburg ascendancy, Urban VIII was quarreling with Cardinal Borgia, 
who represented Spanish interests at the Vatican, and the more fiery adherents of Spain bethought themselves of setting the cumbrous machinery of a general council to work against the Pope. Gradually, however, his eyes were opened to the futility of his devices for counterbalancing the power of the House of Habsburg without damaging the Catholic cause, and before long he once more paid subsidies to the emperor. The election of his successor, Innocent X, Pamphili, 1644-55, was accounted a victory for Spain. But he was a pontiff of slight personal significance, and his support proved of very secondary value to the House of Habsburg in the last phases of the struggle. The task of Ferdinand III, 1637-58, was simply to preserve as far as possible the integrity of his dynastic inheritance and to save what he could save of the remnants of the imperial authority. He succeeded better in the attempt than his father might have done, being readier to temper zeal with discretion, and though blameless in his life, standing less under ecclesiastical control. The contest had not been fought out to its final issue when Richelieu died, December 1642, but the mighty impulse which he had given to the policy of France must have survived, even had his dying recommendation of Mazarin as his successor failed to be respected by Louis XIII. Thus, though after the young king's death, May 1643, the regency of France was in the hands of a princess of Spanish birth, Anne of Austria, the policy of France pursued its consistent course, encouraged by the great victories of Condé and Turenne, the successes of the Swedes, and the stir created on the eastern frontier by Prince George Rakotsi of Transylvania. Peace had become an absolute necessity for the House of Austria, as well as for Bavaria, who sought by doubtful maneuvers to hasten its conclusion and for the other parts of the empire, which foreign invasion and occupation had sucked dry of their very life's blood. Spain had been likewise unfortunate in her struggle against France, with whose ally the United Provinces, Philip IV, concluded peace in January 1648. The Peace of Westphalia, which followed in the autumn of the same year, did not put an end to the persecutions, whereby Catholic powers continued from time to time to assert their right of counter-reformation. The Bohemian Protestants suffered anew in 1651 and 1652, and the Vaudois in 1655. Neither, of course, did it arrest the propaganda of private conversion, which was peculiarly active among the princely houses of the empire, and in other quarters in the latter half of the 17th century, nor allay the spirit of religious animosity between the confessions. On the other hand, it put an end to the long-sustained endeavor begun under Philip II, renewed under Ferdinand II, but never resumed after him, to establish the dominion of the Church of Rome over the whole of Western and Central Europe. So far as the empire was concerned, the progress of Catholicism was very definitely arrested at the point which it had reached on January 1st, 1624, the date now fixed as regulating the tenure of ecclesiastical lands. Bohemia and those hereditary territories of the House of Austria, which had more or less fallen away from the faith, were now secured to Rome. 
In Hungary, however, as has been seen, Protestantism had obtained a measure of concession. Bohemia retained the Upper Palatinate as the reward of her efforts, but the Lower was restored to the Protestant Palatine line. The other territorial changes in the empire, including the sessions made for the satisfaction of the Swedish and French crowns, effected no violent alteration in the balance of the confessions. But the Protestants, Calvinists as well as Lutherans, had gained the full acknowledgment of the right of every territorial sovereign to determine the established religion of his lands, the toleration of private worship being, except in the hereditary dominions of the House of Austria, secured to all three forms of faith alike. At the Diet, religious questions were henceforth to be settled by arrangement, or not at all, and the securities thus obtained derived additional strength from the recognition of the right of the princes of the empire to form alliances as territorial sovereigns with other powers. More dubious was the advantage accruing from the locus standi for intervention in the affairs of the empire granted to France and Sweden. Richelieu's services to Protestantism were not limited to the changes wrought in the religious condition of the empire. His policy had indirectly contributed to the success of the English Revolution, and Mazarin's alliance with the Protectorate, 1655, was in full accordance with the system continued by him. In unhappy Ireland, the great insurrection of 1641 had served as a pretext to victorious Puritanism for establishing an abnormal and unnatural religious as well as proprietary ascendancy. It is said that in France itself, Richelieu, at different times, hoped to restore religious unity to the nation by conference, by concessions, even by corruption. But on such designs at least Rome and the Holy Office could place a sufficient veto. That he hereupon aimed at a schism in one or another form was denied by himself, but he constantly combated the pretensions of the clergy to independence as toward the state, and in the struggle which ensued, the Jesuits allowed themselves to be played off by him against the Sorbonne. These difficulties descended to his successor, notwithstanding the victories of France over Spain. In Spain itself, as in Italy and the Catholic cantons of Switzerland, Catholicism had maintained its position. But the intimate alliance between the two branches of the House of Habsburg was drawing to a close, and the day of Spain's greatness in Europe which had made the Counter-Reformation possible, was vanishing forever. The treaties of Westphalia furnished a durable guarantee of religious peace in Europe, because notwithstanding much in them that was unnatural and much that was unjust, they on the whole corresponded in this, as in other respects, to the actually existing balance of opinions and sentiments in Europe. The papal protest against the peace remained unheeded, and this not merely because canon law made it impossible for the authority of the Pope to dissolve a public treaty between Catholics and non-Catholics, but because the religious conditions of the peace agreed with the necessities of the case as generally recognized. In other words, the endeavor of the Counter-Reformation to dictate a revision of the religious map of Europe was by common consent allowed to have come to an end. Nor was it within the power of any Pope emperor or king to revive this attempt. Yet, in a less specific sense, 
the Counter-Reformation maintained its continuity in much of the enthusiasm and energy perceptible in the religious life of Western and Central Europe during subsequent generations. Nor can the movement ever wholly come to an end, so long as the Church of Rome retains the character formed for her by the course of her history, as well as by the principles of her existence. End of section 24 Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, July 2022. End of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward.